Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are personal finance writer Mary McDougall and Jason Hollands, Managing Director at Tilney Group. What the full effect of the coronavirus will be on markets and economies is unclear. But one thing is certain, many investors are already panicking and as a result, markets are tanking. Such falls can be unnerving, and even if you've held your nerve so far, perhaps it's got you wondering whether you should sell out too. But Jason, why can making investment decisions in the heat of a moment be detrimental, and what would you suggest investors avoid doing in tanking markets? Sure. But look, I think, you know, this is a very fluid situation. Actually, over the last week, markets have certainly been very volatile, but we've seen some really strong up days. Whereas uh, the previous week, when those infection rates surged in Italy, you saw five successive days of market declines, a really sharp decline. Anyone who sold a week ago on Friday will probably be feeling uh, a bit uncomfortable a week later because actually they've essentially crystallised the loss. And I think what that tells me is, is really it very rarely makes sense to take rash actions when markets are moving all over the place over the short run. What we're, we expect to see and what has happened over the last couple of weeks is markets really reacting to every new piece of data. Of course, the new thing this week was the Fed with that emergency rate cut on Tuesday of half percent. There hasn't been such a big rate cut uh, really since the depths of the financial crisis. And of course, markets generally like rate cuts and loose monetary policy. So um, that has obviously helped support markets. Although, of course, we mustn't forget the underlying message is that they've done that because they're very, very pessimistic about the near-term outlook for the global economy. Now, in this sort of environment, actually, sometimes the best action is to do nothing and to sit tight and not make decisions that actually could look a bit foolish a couple of days later, providing you've got a long-term horizon. Okay. I mean, are there any ways or techniques to try to stop yourself panicking and... You know, Make a cup of tea and don't keep looking at uh, um, the valuations. Look, it's it's not surprising that, you know, when the headlines are so gloomy and shocking and there's a lot of worry out there about the spread of this virus and, and the economic impact, of course, it's very easy to panic uh, sell. But actually crystallising paper losses on investment portfolios that actually may be not no, don't need to be touched perhaps for 10 15 20 years that isn't the right thing to do and actually if, if any you know if you ask anyone who's been an investor for many years who's lived through the financial crisis who remembers the dot-com bubble they'll actually tell you that if you've got nerves of steel investing when the news is unremittingly bad and when markets are down is actually usually a way to make money i suppose on the flip side of it ever any situations in which investors would be justified in selling out as markets time? Yes, obviously. I mean, clearly, everyone invests for a reason. And that might be to, to pay off a mortgage or a very specific goal, such as putting a deposit down a house or a kid's wedding. Clearly, if you've got some fairly near term objective, um, then, you know, you may need to cash up if your investments uh, are there to fund that. What I would say is you probably shouldn't be in stock markets at the moment uh, or at any time if you, you need to cash in your investments within a 12-month time period. You should have already been de-risking and taking money out of the market when things were, were brighter just a few weeks ago. Okay. Now, what about 
investors then who are maybe not so close to, let's say, one of these situations where they need to cash in their money, for example, retirement income or a house purchase or, you know, any, any of the things you mentioned. Um, but saying, saying these investors, you know, they're, right, they're not close to it, but they maybe got to a point that you suggested uh, that they start to de-risk uh, in advance. If they were about to start de-risking now ahead of one of these things, should they still do it now and potentially sell at a loss or should they put it on hold and for how long? Well, that's a really interesting mm. question in the current environment because the classic theory is that as you approach, let's say, your retirement date, mm. you de-risk your portfolio. And that means moving money out of the stock market and moving it into the bond market, which is over a long period of time seen as a way of reducing volatility because at some point you want to take that pot of money in your pension and buy an annuity as a one-off purchase to provide you with an income in your retirement. The trouble is, in the current environment, is not only, obviously, have shares taken a bit of a hit in recent weeks, is bond prices have shot up, pushing yields to extreme levels. And to give you an example, 10-year US Treasury bonds, uh, as of yesterday when I last looked, were yielding 0.93%. That's the lowest level ever. And that's uh, the records go back to about the 1760s. So actually, does it really make sense to take money out of the stock market when uh, shares have been derated, really by a lot of panic selling uh, in the short term, and then use that to plough into bonds, which are essentially at an all-time high? I'm not so sure that type of de-risking behaviour is actually uh, really de-risking. You could actually be um, actually making a, um, a move that would backfire on you. So I would say I would be very careful about making big asset allocation calls in the current environment. The behaviour of markets this week shows how quickly things can turn. What we would expect to see with the, this virus is it will spread very rapidly, peak, and then the hit to the economy then comes, comes back later in the year. So it's what we would call a V-shaped recovery on the economy, and markets obviously we would expect actually to, to rally once um, the virus has seen to have sort of had its peak impact. Indeed, we're starting to see some signs of that in China, the epicenter, where uh, Chinese and, and emerging markets have actually fared much better than developed markets over the last two weeks. Why? Because actually there are signs that the effect has slowed. Uh, some of that economic activity has started to um, pick up again. So I would actually say it's much better to delay uh, rather than actually make, try and make big moves in this current environment because you could go from um, you know an environment of falling markets one week to a sharp rally a week later. Second-guessing that is a mugs game. How long should you delay for? Because can I just imagine a situation where you know you have to do it. The time's getting closer and closer and you're very worrying. You think, um, should I do it? Should I do it? I still haven't done it yet. I mean, is there a set time length or is it just watch and wait? Yeah, well, you know, the, 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 the sort of nearest example we have in, in uh, living memory is t- uh, 2003 with the, with this, uh, the SARS uh, uh, virus that also came from China it was actually more deadly but had less of a real-world economic impact because China was a smaller part of um, world markets. But what you saw... A massive hit on Chinese growth, uh, but then a massive pickup a couple of quarters later. And uh, um, markets also correspondingly surged back 
uh, as the virus passed through. So actually, um, this is something that's going to make the next uh, quarter, possibly a couple of quarters, quite uncomfortable. But actually, um, you know, I do think this is not going to have a long-lasting impact. So I would say sit, sit tight, um, sit, sit it out for, you know, the, at least the next qu- uh, quarter. Now, looking at the other side of things, um, as you mentioned, it can be beneficial to buy into markets in times like these if you've got a long-term investment horizon. Theoretically, buying investments at low prices, which in the long term will do well, but... I suppose the issue is, you know, which investments and are there instances when this is not a good idea, um, even if it's a, you know, a, a long time till you need to draw your money and potentially give these investments time to grow? If you're a trader, it's a different mm. ball game because you are trying to you are trying to make a turn on, on a fairly short term time horizon. If you're an investor, and by that I mean someone who's really taking a view probably of, of, of at least five years, then you know I, I do think actually you know buying after a sell, after a sell off makes sense, and actually in many ways prior to the recent slide we've seen in the last couple of weeks, markets were quite ripe for it, because you know a lot of in, developed market indices were you know at all time highs, the U.S. market in particular, but other markets including Europe, you know the P multiples and the Cape valuations of stocks you know, are trading at levels that, you know, frankly, you know, look rich compared to history. So actually, you know, the starting point for this slide off is actually markets were looking pretty fully valued, if not expensive, particularly US stocks. And so some of this, you know, on the back of this um, concern over the pandemic has been an opportunity to kind of take some of that heat out of the market. Um, and I think that's always a good point to come into the market and, and start building a position or adding to holdings. Um, so I think providing you've got that longer time t- term time horizon, I wouldn't deter people from, in- from investing, even though it can feel very lonely when the headlines are negative and it feels like you're going against the herd. Ultimately, investing is about buy low, sell high, not the other way around. Okay. Now, if you do do this, how would you go about doing it? Would you just bang in a lump sum? Would you drip feed in and have any kind of things, silly mistakes in this respect to avoid doing? Yeah, so I would have, I, you know, I'm not advocating that people call the market. Mm. You know, could the markets be lower, you know, in a month's time? Quite possibly. They could be higher. No one knows at this stage. But I, I do think actually it's a time when actually you might start feeding money in. So rather than trying to be a hero and call the bottom no one knows where the where where the bottom of the slide is. It could have been this week, for all we know. Um, but I think just feeding money in gradually through a series of lump sums, or perhaps you're already doing this through a monthly savings scheme, is a very sensible way to go. What I would say is, don't ignore your ISA allowance or your pension allowance this year if you normally use it because of this. If you've got the money available, do fund it. Actually, you don't have to invest it all straight away anyway. Just put it in cash and drip feed it in over time. No, if you are doing that are there any particular areas of equity markets that you think could be good to top up just now obviously if those assets are appropriate uh for you yourself well i think look you know among de- de- developed mm. markets the uk certainly um looks more fairly valued than a number of other markets it's also you know the us the problem with the us is the us market does look I- expensive and the dollar it, it also looks expensive um i think on the other side of developed markets japan and europe are going to be they're much more uh, sensitive to global trade and cyclicality um and also 
the central banks in both those regions already have uh, interest rates at rock bottom levels. So their ability to intervene and respond in the way that the Fed has and the and maybe the Bank of England will is less convincing. So I actually say for a lot of investors, the UK is the place that they probably ought to be looking at. And actually, a lot of investors have kind of gone underweight the UK over the last three or four years because we've had one or two other uh, issues <laughs> over that time. You may recall something called Brexit and the general election that seems a distant memory mm. in that wall of worries. Mm. Um, but actually topping up on the UK is a is probably a good place to start. Obviously, one thing to be wary of, and one of the reasons why the UK market's taken quite a hit over the last couple of weeks is uh, among the larger companies, we've got quite a big exposure to oil and gas and commodities. So I'd actually say probably focus more on on the sort of mid-cap space. Um, I actually like funds that invest across the market cap spectrum. Okay, and which ones would you suggest? So I think that, you know, a couple of funds that, that would be good core long-term holdings, but actually arguably pretty good in the current environment would be Lion Trust Special Situations and TB Even Load Income. Now, different funds, but the two characteristic, uh, characteristics that both have in common is they don't tend to invest in highly cyclical types of companies. What they tend to invest in is companies that have very resilient earnings, that generate lots of free cash flow. Uh, those funds actually have historically also done very well in tough markets and tough periods for the economy as well as outperforming over the long run. So for, for my mind, those seem good long-term holdings, but, but also ones that should perform quite well through, um, you know, what could turn into a technical recession over the coming months. OK, thank you, Jason. Some really helpful suggestions. Most regional markets have fallen due to recent volatility. And in the case of Europe, not only has it faced this problem, it actually has a number of other headwinds too. Mary, you've been looking at this. What are the problems? Hi, Leonora. Yes, so Jason's already mentioned uh, Europe's sensitivity to the global markets. But coronavirus aside, the Eurozone economic growth lags other regions. Um, So Capital Economics, the research consultancy, for example, forecast GDP growth of 0.7% in the Eurozone this year. um, And that compares with 2% in the US and 3% for emerging markets. Um, And we can probably expect these to be um, revised down across the board. Europe's economic powerhouse, Germany, has come close to a technical recession twice in the last two years. And there's also the problem of interest rates, which Jason mentioned, the ECB deposit rates now at minus 0.5%, which is the lowest lowest it's ever been. Um, so they're running out of space for stimulus. There's fractious politics, um, which can stifle decision making. For example, Christine Lagarde, the president of the ECB, has pledged support for fiscal stimulus programmes, but German policymakers are resistant in favour of balanced budget spending. The CDU, the Christian Democratic Union Party, have a leadership election coming up in April, um, so they're more focused on domestic issues at the moment rather than stimulus programmes. And also Brexit, the trade negotiations are entering an important phase Uh, The UK is not an insignificant trading partner for Europe. So if no deal is reached by the end of the year, that that presents another headwind um, for markets. This doesn't sound good at all. Should investors avoid putting their money into European equities? Yeah, Sorry, so that did sound very negative. No, I don't think so. There are still some really good companies in Europe um, and and growth opportunities. It's a huge area um, that tends to be ignored by UK investors. 
But for all the reasons that I did mention, I wouldn't recommend investing in a European index tracker because um, if you buy an index, you're effectively buying uh, yesterday's companies. It's overweight out of favour sectors such as banking, oil, utilities. Um, but there are there are good companies for shrewd investors. Bailey Gifford did some interesting analysis of 10-year rolling returns over the past 30 years comparing the US and Europe and concluded that the probability of picking a company that would quadruple in growth um, was about the same in each region. But the types of companies are very different. So the US has the big glamorous tech stocks, but Europe has some very strong business-to-business companies in niche industries that don't make the headlines. What particular opportunities do listed European companies offer? Well, there are some sectors where European companies dominate, such as luxury brands um, and certain industrial areas. Brands such as Louis Vuitton and Hermes have earned huge margins, satisfying the appetite of the growing middle class in China for luxury Western goods, big exporters. Um, sportswear companies such as Adidas and Puma have also generated strong returns over a long period by selling to countries all over the world. But the, the best growth can probably be found in, in industrial lesser-known brands. Um, examples include Elevator Maker Cone in Finland um, or Geberit in Sweden, which is a plumbing supplies company. And these companies generate customer loyalty because of their high-quality products. Um, the other area that Europe could emerge as a leader in is the renewable energy sector. It's really, the, it's really leading the way in, this, in the Green Revolution. Um, two of the three largest wind turbine manufacturers are European. And legislation in Europe is more developed, which means that companies have had to adapt from an earlier stage. Okay. I mean, that sounds really good, actually. So um, how do you tap into these opportunities? Um, well, I think you want to go for an actively managed fund over a, over a passive fund and maybe a concentrated one. An example of a good European fund has been the Mighton European Opportunities Fund, which was the best performing fund in the IA Europe ex-UK sector last year, returning 33%. I don't think anyone would expect it to perform in the same way again this year, but it's got a good record of of strong returns. Uh, the fund has about 60 holdings with a bias to medium-sized companies with a market cap of between 2 billion and 15 billion. So yeah, I think um, going for maybe a mid-cap fund might be a better option. Okay, good suggestion. Um, now, Jason, would you agree that uh, European equities are worth investing in despite the various economic problems that you and Mary have both outlined? Yeah, well, obviously, I, I, I broadly agree with Mary's uh, analysis of um, the challenges that Europe as a region faces in the current environment, uh, you know, because of that exposure to cyclicals and trade, slow growth. Actually, the, the negotiations with the with the UK they are really are actually in a lot weaker position than they uh, appear to believe they're in or say they're in. But it is important that you know again not to be confused by the European economy and the shape of European markets. Germany is the powerhouse economy, the biggest economy in uh, Europe. But actually, in most European indices, Switzerland actually has uh, more uh, representation about. 21% versus 18% for Germany in most indices. So they are not one and the same thing. The one thing I would be careful about is, is I'd agree, you shouldn't buy a, tr- a tracker fund because you'll get exposure to some of these more cyclical sectors that are going to be under pressure. And also the biggest uh, sector in the European market is, or uh, one of the biggest sectors, is financials, about 17%. 
and actually European banks are weak. They've never been fully recapitalized in the way that US or UK banks were, were in, the, in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And that you know, long period of very low interest rates is hurting their margins and profits. And of course, the one thing we can expect now with coronavirus is actually very low rates are going to hang around for a bit longer. But of course, there are good businesses to be found. Actually, I think you know one way of getting exposure is through some of the um, the investment trusts have seen um, mm-hmm. discounts widen across the board, uh, reflecting that negativity. Um, I think you know that, uh, for example, an, an interesting one would be European Opportunities Trust, yeah. which was Alexander the former Darwell's, Jupiter Opportunities yes. mm. Trust, managed by Alex Darwell, who's who's now uh, set up it, uh, on his own. Um, you know that trust frequently traded at a premium. You can now buy it at a nine point seven percent discount to NAV. Um, that started to widen actually in, 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 uh, uh, that discount in February. So I think that would be one to look at because also he doesn't invest in these types of cyclical companies. Doesn't own any of the European banks. He is invested in the sort of uh, growth type companies. So that would be one I would look at. And I, you know, so I think you know you can always find uh, funds that are invested in high quality companies that are really global in nature. They just happen to be listed in Europe for reasons of history sometimes, um, but are not really a play on uh, the European economy. Okay, I mean, just on I suppose on that subject in general, how much do major European equity indices, and I suppose things like MSCI Europex UK, FTSE uh, Europex UK, etc. I mean, how much do they reflect the region's domestic economy? Uh, it's interesting. I mean, you know, mm. the, the, they are dominated, those indices, as I say, by banks. And the banks obviously are integral to the um, uh, Europe's domestic e- economy because in Europe, bank financing of businesses is plays a much bigger role than, say, in the UK or the US, where there's a, you know, a much more advanced um, uh, investment and equity funding environment. So they would be exposed. And obviously, they're very exposed to... Uh, where the ECB goes on rates, and um, so um, in that to that extent that, that, that there is a, that they are a domestic play, but obviously you know you've got the big auto manufacturers, for example, uh, they are very exposed to international trade. They've suffered already uh, because of the U.S.-China trade war and the uh, and all those trade uncertainties, and of course the 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 war of words between the EU itself and the U.S. But also, you know, uh, healthcare is a big sector in the EU, largely because of some of the big Swiss firms, but also some of the French drugs companies, and that's a global business. Thank you, Jason. And see the big theme in this week's fund sections for Mary's full report on the opportunities European equities offer and also details of a UK-listed share that Alexander Darwell, manager of European Opportunities Trust, invests in. Amid all the market madness, it might be easy to forget another key aspect of investing, tax efficiency. There are a number of government-approved ways to shelter your investments from tax, and one of the main ones is individual savings accounts, ISAs. Jason, in brief, what's an ISA and what are its main benefits? Think of an ISA as a, as a wrapper, as a place where you can hold savings, cash or investments and any returns made are essentially sheltered from the taxman, not just in terms of actually not paying tax on them when you draw upon them, but also you don't even need to disclose the returns in, on your tax return. So for all sorts of reasons, uh, they're a really sensible allowance to use. And, you know, whilst unlike a pension, 
where you get an upfront tax benefit, you get some tax relief, or or you do currently, we'll see what happens in the budget next week. Whilst it doesn't, ISIS don't bring that feature, so you're not getting an upfront boost, everything on the way out is tax-free. Whereas, of course, with a pension, you get something upfront, but when you eventually draw on your pension, you may well be paying tax on any income you draw from it. So uh, the, the value of those tax benefits, essentially, with an ISA builds over time as the value of the assets hopefully grow. And when you decide to turn those into an income stream through either, you know, bond income or shared evidence. Okay, so some um, similarities and arguably even uh, uh, benefits uh, relative to pensions. Um, but can you use an ISA to save for retirement? Is it a good retirement vehicle? Uh, abso- absolutely. And many for many people, they're, they're a bigger part of the retirement planning space than they used to be because... As um, many of your readers will know, that over the years, the amount that you can tuck away into pensions has become rationed. Uh, there have been cuts to the amount that people can put in each year, particularly now for high earners, those earning over £150,000 who are hit by the tapered pension allowance. But also for any uh, pension saver, once your pension hits the lifetime allowance, currently £1,055,000, any uh, uh, excess over and above that when you take your pension benefits will get hit by a tax levy. So actually increasingly, uh, you know, many people see ISAs as a much bit bigger part of their retirement planning strategy. And of course, one of the advantages of ISAs over pensions is they're just a lot more flexible. There are no restrictions on the time um, that, that you have to hold your money. Indeed, you can put money into an ISA now and take it out during the year and put it back in. So ISAs are incredibly flexible. Uh, Do not hold back on using your ISA allowance if you have the cash available to do so. You could change your mind in a week's time and take your money out with usually no cost involved. Okay. Now, um, the problem with ISAs is there are lots of different types of ISAs, specifically six, and five of which are open to investment. So which ones do you use for retirement saving? Sure. I mean, one of the confusing things, as you rightly alluded to, is the family of ISAs that you're using the ISA brand has uh, uh, spawned various offshoots over the years. The guilty person for much of this was one George Osborne, uh, who also created the tapered pension allowance, bless him. Um, but there's, so there, you, you have helped to buy ISAs, junior ISAs. But for most people, it's the, uh, the adult ISA is a £20,000 per person allowance, so pretty meaty. That means a couple uh, can put away £40,000 tax-free each year. You know, Even if you don't have the cash available to use that allowance, do think about, have you got any shares or funds that perhaps were bought outside of ISAs? Think about, actually, whether or not you should sell those and possibly even rebuy them if you're happy with the same shares or funds within the ISA, so that over time, you know, as much as possible of your investment portfolio is sheltered from the tax man. Uh, it's interesting. I was looking the other day, uh, um, since 1990, 1991, around about 6.5% of taxpayers paid tax at the higher rate. Today, that's around about 13.5% of people. So a lot more people have fallen into higher rate tax. So the more of your savings and investments you can uh, shelter from the tax man, the better. Okay, thank you, Jason. And see our special ISA supplement with today's magazine for more on which ISA you should go for and 40 investment suggestions to help grow and diversify your ISA or give you a good income. That brings us to the end of today's show, but see Investors Chronicle or the website at www. 
investorschronicle.co.uk for more on how to manage investments during market falls, European equity funds and tax efficiency. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.